0: Carmen de Biassi writes about English and Italian literature, and his poems have appeared in various journals. Last year, his English translations of 13 poems by Cesare Pavese appeared in La Nola che Non Tiene, Journal of Modern Italian Literature. Occasionally, he reviews books for the Times Literary Supplement. He has recently retired as Distinguished Professor of English at Jacksonville State University in Alabama. His chapbook of poems, American Rondeau, is due out from Finishing Line Press this summer. Carmine, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James, it's an
1: honor to be here.
0: Well, before asking about your wonderful upcoming book, American Rondeau, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about your years as an English professor. What poetic gift did you most want to share with your students?
1: I think that um, what poetry can do for, um, uh, for people who don't write it, who don't um who don't aspire to, to become artists of any kind, is uh is to give them company uh to express something um uh something that uh, that they have felt uh, and that they haven't given voice to, and that um that might make them feel, uh, adrift and alone, um, and to discover, to discover, to discover a disturbing sentiment or a nagging, uh, inchoate feeling, to discover it in print, in, in a, in a, in a structured, articulate form, I think can be, um, can be a gift of, um, uh, of uh,
0: of immeasurable value uh, can be a, a tremendous consolation. So what did you learn about giving effective feedback in your years working with students? And in that role, you're going to give feedback about their poetry in part, which is a very personal form of communication.
1: I think sincerity uh, needs to be rewarded uh, no matter how uh, no matter how um, no matter what the formal defects of a poem might be or an essay or a piece of fiction, I think that if the, if the sentiment is sincere, um, probably there will be, it needs to be rewarded and acknowledged because probably there will, there will also be signs in whatever, whatever form it's been expressed in, there will be signs of some kind of, some kind of emerging structure. Um, and, um, uh, uh, because I do believe that, um, that every sentiment, every sincerely felt and expressed sentiment is, um, is looking for its form, looking for its, its most natural, most economical form. Um, and, um, so in that way, it comes from within, um, And that's what I've always tried to to do with with my students. Whether they're you know writing a poem, I I didn't teach creative writing, but sometimes we 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 toyed with sonnets, for example, in my literature survey class. Whether it's in an essay um, or a piece of fiction, uh, I've I've always tried to tell my students to um, uh, to hang on very tightly. To the, to the impulse that led them to start the piece uh, because it's from there that everything else will, will come, including the form.
0: Yeah, that's difficult to do. So that's, that's terrific feedback to give to students. Um, as we'll come back to later, you have a love of Shakespeare. I watched Joel Conan's The Tragedy of Macbeth, and it made me hungry for more Shakespeare. I'm gradually making my way through each of Shakespeare's plays. I haven't made it through all of them, but I'm, I, I'm gradually making it through all of them. Why have his plays achieved such longevity? And how can modern ears benefit from words written hundreds of years ago?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a question that's been, um, that, 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 keeps getting, that keeps getting asked every year. And every year there have been complaints about there being too much Shakespeare uh, I went in the year two thousand to a, a conference in Long Island at uh, Hofstra University, where, where the organi—not the organizer, but a member in the of the audience—actually called for a moratorium on Shakespeare productions because uh, he felt that they had been so bad uh, in recent years. And yet they keep they keep uh, they keep living. The plays do, and actually, I'm I'm. Um, Working as dramaturg, I've been working as dramaturg for um, something we call the Shakespeare Project here in northeast Alabama. And our our goal is to put on one Shakespeare play, half a dozen or eight productions in a row of one Shakespeare play aimed at young audiences, free of charge, but with professional actors mixed in with um, um, uh, student actors. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing how accessible the plays can be made. Um, but I think that the reason they, the reason that Shakespeare is still such a draw is that, um, even in his own time, uh, the settings and the characters were, were not local, uh, except for, you know, the very English plays, uh, the settings and the characters um dislocate the the the, the uh the, the, the stories that he tells so that you're you're in this kind of fantastical world that is neither England nor Italy nor uh Austria um nor France and yet uh somehow nor Africa and yet somehow somehow um uh This kind of kaleidoscopic mishmash of of um of s- character uh, ethnicities and locales results in in a a, 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 a kind of universally adaptable a universally um, uh, accessible um, and appealing um, vision of humanity
0: yeah. Well, indeed, without a name, you write, it's true. I carved a gaping hole into Mackinwald, and his innards steamed as they came out. So, yes, my sword smoked, but I never cut a man in half lengthwise from the navel to the chin. In several of your poems, I imagine you winking at the reader. Uh, There's a mischievous humor in some of your poetry. How do you approach drawing from a source material as iconic as Shakespeare and finding that ability to wink at the reader?
1: Oh, that's that's, um, uh, that's very kind of you to notice to notice this and to say this um, uh, that poem actually comes from um, it, it actually comes from an article that I wrote on Macbeth years ago um, because there's a moment in, uh, in in Macbeth and Macbeth is is one of the best known plays and uh, even you know, even high school students will probably have a few lines of the witches, the witches' enchantment of their brew, uh, the witches' incantation memorized. Um, um, but there's a line in the encounter between the witches and Macbeth that um, that snagged me uh, when I was reading the play for for the first time. Uh, Macbeth asks the witches. What is it that you do? And they say, "A deed without a name." And this is this was this became you know the answer to that question. What what do the what in the world do the witches mean? A deed without a name. Uh, and this became this became uh, a, a kind of quest for me for several years uh, to try to answer this question. And at, the more I the more I pondered it, the more I read about the play, the more I read the play itself, the more clear it became to me that Macbeth, and in fact, all of Shakespeare, is a kind of, is a kind of um, uh, dramatic presentation of Shakespeare himself learning about the power of language, the power of naming. Uh, uh, if, if you look at the play carefully, you see that the moments that, that are most that are most uh, poetic, the moments that where Shakespeare has poured most of his of, of his powers of lyricism, are those moments that involve uh, that involve naming in one way or another. Not just proper names, but the naming of things, of people, lists, um, um, and uh, uh, in short, what happens what happens is that the, uh, uh, the thing that is named, the thing or the person that is named, is, is dominated by whoever's doing the naming. So when, when Duncan um, first meets Macbeth on the stage, he says, um, My Cador." My glamis, uh, and it could easily escape us uh, the, the fact that, uh, that he's using a, a possessive pronoun there. And, and that's the point where, you know, when, when Macbeth is named Thane of Cawdor, he's supposed to be happy. He's supposed to be happy. He's been promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been, given a, he's been given a traitor's name. The, real, the first Cawdor has is, is, is going to be executed for, for treason. He's been given a, tra- a traitor's title. And yes, it refers to a certain territory. Now he's Thane of Cawdor in addition to being Thane of Glamis. Uh, but, uh, but the problem is he's been given a traitor's name and he's been given this name by the king and it's from the king that all of his identity uh, has ever come from and will ever come from unless he kills the king and becomes king himself. And at the very end of the play, um, Malcolm, at the end of the play, is grim. Um, but Malcolm uh, its grim because, because Malcolm uh, it repeats at the end of the play what happens at the beginning of the play. He says, all my, all my thanes shall be earls the first that ever in scotland ever named uh, so everyone should be happy but of course we know that at that moment there's another macbeth in front of him somewhere there's another there's another person bristling at the at the sudden realization that uh, that that all of his being will forever come from above and not from within mm-hmm. And this is why I think Macbeth never enjoys a moment of his, uh, 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 of his position. He never enjoys being king for, for a moment. Because what he, what he really wants is not to be king, but rather not to be, not to be the subject, not, not to be forever uh, subject to the king's whims. Um, and uh, and duncan is a kind of fool he's 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 uh, an he's an imperceptive um dim-visioned uh foolish man he doesn't see as soon as he arrives at macbeth's castle he says he says oh my goodness the air is so sweet here the birds are singing this is a lovely place we're going we're going to have a good time uh and um uh, and at one point he actually says, you know, when, when the, the, the real trade, the first Cawdor is, is, uh, is revealed as a traitor, he says, my goodness, there's, there's no art um, to read a man's mind in his face. I may have that line wrong, uh, but he says, there's, there's no way, there's absolutely no way to know what a, what a man is really thinking, is there? I, in other words, I never expected this from Cawdor. And of course, the same, he doesn't learn anything uh, uh, from, from the experience. He repeats his mistake with, with the next thing of Cawdor.
0: So your, your book, American Rondeau is so wonderfully playful with language, combining complex forms with literary references, yet tackling contemporary and in many cases, personal subjects. I'm fascinated by poets that employ received forms so effectively. How do you choose the form your poetry uses?
1: So um, I began the book with, uh, I, I, I put the book together. The book came together um, kind of gradually, and it, it dawned on me gradually that, um, uh, that that this mixture of poems inspired by Shakespeare, Mixed with a larger proportion of poems that draw from my own life, form a kind of um, form a kind of a kind of exploration. Metaphorically, we can say that they form a kind of dance with American life. Uh, my parents came from another country; they came from Italy. I grew up speaking Italian. I still speak Italian with my brothers and with my father, who's still alive, um, and. Um, in the home, we we always spoke Italian, and then I studied it also, because I didn't want to lose it. And it was partly that whole experience that led me to, to literature. I began in engineering, and I, I wasn't cut out for it. It, it didn't hold me. Uh, so... And I was drawn to Shakespeare because of because of your, your one of your earlier questions because you know because so many of his plays are set in Italy and Italy of his of his imagination, and I was stunned later to learn that there's absolutely no evidence at all that Shakespeare ever traveled uh, outside of England, let alone to Italy. Uh, he knew Italians. He probably knew John Florio, a famous lexicographer. Um, uh, uh, who uh, was was the son of um, uh, of, a, of a of a Jewish, probably a Jewish Italian immigrant. Um, um, so the the forms. Um, uh, it occurred to me that I was using forms uh, that, that I was drawn to restrictive forms um, uh, for all kinds of reasons. But one of them, one of them, is because some of them are some of them continue to be appropriate. I wrote a sestina um, once, uh, and it's it's in the book, and it's about my grandfather. Um, the, the the sestina is a very exacting form because it's um, uh, it's composed of six line stanzas, and if you number the the final word of every line. Of, of, of a given stanza is used as the final word of every line of the next of all the stanzas. Um, but the pattern has to be repeated. The pattern has to be manipulated in, in this way. If you number the, the lines one, two, three, four, five, six, then in stanza two, the end word, the end words uh, have to uh, 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 appear in this kind of interlacing pattern. Six, one, five, two, uh, four, three. And then the following stanza does the same thing. And the concluding stanza is only three lines, each of them ending in one of the six words, but containing another of the six words inside of it someplace. So it's, it's the most, um, Restrictive, oppressive form uh, imaginable, and uh, among them anyway. And so, when James uh, Woodward, uh, uh, the uh, my colleague in music, asked me to write a poem about in the voice of Lady Macbeth, he just gave me um, he, he gave me one prompt. He said. Uh, I want, I want Lady Macbeth in front of a modern bathroom mirror, mulling over what has just happened to her, uh, and that was it. So I decided to put it in this, in, in the in the form of a sestina, and um, because Lady Macbeth is a trapped character. And, uh, and so the, the, the claustrophobic nature, the oppressive nature of this form matches, uh, matches her, her frame of mind. Um, and, um, and then I I did the same kind of thing for slightly different reasons with Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream and Gloucester, uh, from uh, King Lear, um, this is a very old form it goes all the way back to the troubadour poets uh before dante and a lot of these forms have to do with uh with dance and they were performative they were they were they were they were forms that uh, uh that the poets played with and competed with at, in public settings um the ballad is clearly uh, related to dance and uh, but it's it's content was, um, and I have one ballad in, uh, in, in my upcoming collection, its content was the same kind of content that we see in uh, our tabloid magazines, like the National Enquirer. Sensational crimes, freakish births, um, uh, famous people murdered in gruesome ways. Um, and some years ago, I thought, oh, my God, this is just the kind of story for uh, for a ballad. And it was the story of um, uh, uh, Mr. Maivaz, uh, uh, who is now in prison because he found someone who would allow him to eat him. Uh, Maivaz is the famous or the infamous German cannibal uh, whose story was told in a number of newspapers. News store and news accounts, and he eventually wrote his um, his his autobiography. Um, He was actually imprisoned and released because there was no provision in 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 the German law uh, for dealing with such a crime. Because it was all videotaped, and his victim his victim was not even a victim really, because he consented completely. Uh, And so, I invented almost none of the details for that ballad. All of that uh, is, is uh, almost all of it, except the dialogue, and some of the dialogue too is, is, is true, but almost all of it is, is drawn from, from news accounts uh, of, this, uh, of this gruesome event. It was just the kind of thing that 16th century and 15th century ballad uh, mongers would sell uh, at their, at their bookstalls. And of course, the yes yeah, sir yeah no no
0: it's it's absolutely fascinating. I didn't uh realize how much of it was found poetry, and um it's, it's a wonderfully it's again going back to your mischievous sensibility that's that's buried inside your poetry, I thought that was a a wonderful example of it and yes the 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 form being so appropriate for the subject matter, um I think that's a wonderful way to think about it um especially for poets that are trying to decide, well, what form does this poem take? Sometimes starting with the form makes sense, and other times you find the form in the poem. Yeah, very cool. So I wanna change. switch to something totally different. So in Elegy to a Cyclist, you do something all poets are called to do from time to time, to eulogize a friend or family member. It's one of the hardest poems to write. I've had to do it, unfortunately, several times usually without forewarning or much time to complete the task. Your poem closes with, Come down some sunny day and ride with us and lay your winged shadow on our backs. Love that. That's a beautiful line. Uh, for poets being asked to write a poem in memor- memoriam, how do you recommend approaching the task? I
1: think the, um, the, um, the most important thing uh, in writing a an elegy is um is to it is to find to find what it is what gift the the deceased what 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 was the most precious gift that the that the deceased person uh, has left you with and uh, and and go from there, uh, the people we miss, the people we miss, uh, never really die uh, because, because we remember them, uh, and we remember them in certain ways, for certain reasons, uh, and their, their presence, their presence comes back to us at certain moments, when we need them. Um, it's almost automatic. What would Dave do at such a moment? What would Dave say? Dave was his name. Um, uh, he was a ferocious cyclist, a ferociously competitive cyclist. But he was ab- he was he was so taciturn. Uh, he never bragged, and if he saw somebody bragging, he would teach him a lesson uh, and and put a stop to it, even if it killed him. Uh, he later I learned that that uh, when uh you know this is something he never told us but i learned from his from his from his wife that um uh the days you know the, the the day after a hard ride with us he could barely walk mm-hmm. uh he would he would you know linger on the couch you know uh, uh, lounge around all day recovering uh but he this is something he would never reveal uh, to us so restraint for me in writing about uh, Dave Dave Robertson uh, uh, the the lesson about restraint um, was a precious one and it, it radiates throughout my own work Dave was not a writer he was he was um, uh, an engineer of, of some kind I don't even really know what he did I think he did quality control at a manufacturing plant here nearby Um Practically all we had in common was the bicycle, and um, uh, but uh, I wish I had told him how much he contributed, how much how much he contributed and reaffirmed contributed to to my ideas about poetry, about writing prose, um, uh, um, because um, because he was a kind of you know he did in his. With in his in his athleticism, what a what a what a poet does um, in in uh, uh, in in disciplining the pen. Uh, so yeah, I think locating that most that most treasured um, uh, gift that they leave us with, and turning that into a you know into a in, into a story, seeing that in several several phases of. Several parts of your of your experience with the person um, will lead no doubt to um, uh, to a form to a story uh, to a shape
0: that's a wonderful way to think about it, and I think I've done that intuitively, but that's you know I know I will I'm sure be asked again in the future, and that will ring, ring in my ears so before you read a couple of selections from American Rondo. I'd like you to share a wonderful sestina that is being transformed into a short film and to say a little bit about the trilogy of films based on your Shakespeare-inspired sestinas.
1: The poem Through Gloucester's Eyes, like you mentioned, James, is is now being turned into a film short directed by James Woodward, who is our resident composer here at, at, at Jacksonville State University. And uh I'm very much looking forward to it because, because he turned the earlier Sestina, consider it not so deeply, into a film short, uh, which you, you discovered in, in uh in one of the film festivals. Uh it was in three film festivals, and we made use of our one of our very best student actresses here who just graduated. She did a terrific job. And uh we're, we have an older actor playing, doing the voice of, of Gloucester. And uh, we've done the voice recording already with using his voice. And in a few weeks, we're going to be doing the, the filming. And we hope to have some kind of success with, with it. And after it, we're doing uh, a film short of the one that you so kindly published uh, for me. Midsummer Nut Brown Ale, which is which is in the voice of Puck. And that, that was conceived in a similar way. Uh, James Woodward said, look, I, I have this image of Puck, tired, uh, sitting at a modern bar, complaining about all of his failures. Go. And so now we have this this trilogy that James wanted. Uh, he wanted to sandwich a comedy between two, two tragedies. And so this one will be, through Gloucester's eyes, then is, uh, is, uh, is going to be, probably the third one, the third of the three. So here it is. And uh, I imagined uh, uh, one of the most moving parts uh, or moments of King Lear is when his son, his good son, uh, Edgar, uh, recounts how his father died. His father died uh, when he was told by Edgar. That the, the man next, the man who walked with him in his blindness uh, to, through his last days, was, was not Tom of Bedlam. It was, in fact, his good son, Edgar. And, um, and at that moment, and this all happens off stage, at that moment, Gloucester's heart cracks because it's torn, as Edgar says, between two extremes of happiness and grief. So here's the poem Through Gloucester's Eyes. How sure I was, old Lear, that you had lost your mind when you denounced your own good flesh and blood, Cordelia, and believed the lies the other two, also your own, had closed you in. So clear to me was your mistake that I was blinded to the same in me. My poor Edmund. Horse and child, hated me for laughing as I told of how I'd lost my virtue at his making. A mistake of youth, I said, a folly of the flesh, conceived under the dragon's tail, and clothed, therefore, in filth. They served me well, such lies. But you, Lear, shed that motley suit of lies, and saw your body's truth. There before me, withered and enraged, you stood, your unclothed, trembling form, blue-veined, pale and small. You lost the world and found yourself, became your flesh, every inch of it a king. Your mistake, your vanity became then my mistake alone. No rain could wash the world's rank lies from me, forked animal, nor cool my flesh. You shook to see what had become of me, my eye holes hollowed out, their luster lost, hardened gore hanging from a frame ill-clothed. Grief without end, it seemed, till Edgar, clothed in rags and howling mad, made me mistake a plane for Dover's Cliffs. I would have lost my being there, tossed myself, all my lies, to the rocks below. He knew to let me play at falling down off this world of flesh. I rose up from my knees, and he then, flesh of my flesh, spoke as himself again. Closed me in a son's embrace, kindly schooled me. To drop unripe, he called a fool's mistake. Now I see. Here my empty bone cage lies at rest, whistling in the wind. Glad it lost in time its ripened flesh, my old mistake incarnate. Now Unclothed at last, no lies can hold me. I am
0: wind, now touched, now lost. You know, on my poetry to-do list is tackling the sestina, a form that fascinates and terrifies me. I'm amazed by your ability to employ a form with such rigid rules and not have the form overwhelm the poetry. So many questions on this, but I'll try to distill it down to just one, really how do you approach the inevitable editing trade-offs and puzzles required to remain true to the form and maybe the the critical choice of six words or is it critical and you just make it work? Uh, Just, I'm just curious how you approach not as a recipe, but as sort of an intellectual challenge, making the form work without it overwhelming the poetry.
1: Yeah, I think this is crucial. I think that it has to be something much more than a puzzle much more than tinkering with with words and i do think the choice of the six words is is important but once you've settled on it you have to find a way i think to make none of it seem forced mm-hmm. to make like you said it, it, to keep the form from overwhelming the meaning because once that happens the balloon bursts and it's it's no longer a, a, a poem, uh, it's it's a it's a word game, and the I, I think the goal needs to be to make uh, to let the form dawn on the reader upon a second or third or fourth reading, uh, to so that it, it it emerges after the fact. It emerges as as a kind of secondary thing, which then comments which then further informs or deepens the uh, the message, the content.
0: Beautiful. Well, now I'm going to have you read a couple of poems from American Rondeau, and then I'll ask you a couple questions, and then I will send you on your way to create more beautiful poetry.
1: As we were talking about a little earlier, I see this this little collection of poems of mine as a kind of dance with... American life, which for me has been has been, I, I think, in, in, enriched quite a bit because of my parents, because because they they raised me speaking a different language, uh, Italian, and uh, oddly enough, that gave me access to Shakespeare, a kind of access to Shakespeare that I, I might never have had before. But there are other forms. The I never I never thought that I would be writing poetry, I fell into the, the, the business of writing poetry through translation. It was as I was translating Cesare Pavese's poems that uh, it occurred to me that I, I might have a little something of my own to put in these word boxes that we call poetic forms. Oddly enough, Pavese was an Americanist. He was deeply influenced by Walt Whitman, and he was the Italian translator of Moby Dick. So the, the forms he uses, the forms that other European poets use and that early English poets used, continue, I, I think, to live. And they continue to teach us lessons about, about writing and about life, uh, about poetry. One of the most moving poems I, I've ever read was John McCrae's In Flanders Fields, uh, the World War I poet and uh, these two poems are in that form. It's a rondo, it's, and it's, a, you know, it's ultimately, in the earliest days, was tied to, to a kind of dance. And so I began, I, I gave the, my chapbook the title American Rondo, uh, but it's also the last poem in the collection. And the first one is Roman Rondo, and I've also included a couple of other rondos in the middle of the, of the, of the collection. So here is, here is the opening poem uh, to the collection. This is called Roman Rondo. The form is very simple. It's three stanzas. The, the, the rhyme scheme is uh, uh, um, uh, rather exacting, actually. It's A, A, B, B, A. A, A, B, and then A, A, B, B, A again with the first phrase of the, of the poem repeated uh, once at the, at the end of the second and third stanzas. So here's Roman Rondo. That old stone space has lost its wooden floor. Strewn with arena, dry sand for wet gore. It gave the crowd a clean staged kill. We know now all the corridors of fear below, the slaves' close walls, the lion's cage next door. And to know is to be a child no more, to outgrow the vice of the emperor, the puerile lust for blood, the noise and glow that old stone space has lost. Grotesque here on this American shore these new fat men who would with glee restore that savage ignorance of long ago. In their arenas of glass and steel, no valor lives. Only the borrowed horror that old stone space has lost. So that's my opening poem. And then my closing poem is one that was published in the South Florida Poetry Journal. When Lenny de la Rocca gave us all a stimulus, and um, it was just one line, and uh, several he asked several people to to spin a poem around that one line. So here is here is American Rondo. I nearly overlooked this arrowhead tonight. See how it glows like Mars, faint red under this moon, this piece of silica that long ago tore through the viscera of some poor beast on which the hunter fed. Suspended in this blackness, all outspread against the stars, the quickening homebred objects float, a teeming cornucopia I nearly overlook. Top hats, guns, trombones, a child's painted sled. Clocks, chrome bumpers, blue jeans with yellow thread. The gleaming marquee of a cinema. The dreamtime history of America. An unfurled picture scroll above my head I nearly overlooked.
0: I love both those poems. And I I think that uh, I want to ask you about how you thought about Ordering your book because I originally when I got when you sent me a copy of it I thought okay I'll read a couple first thing in the morning and then go have breakfast I read the first poem and then had to read the whole book it just it just pulled me right in and as I was uh, thinking about the my most recent book uh, I had a lot of debates with some colleagues and and they said yeah that first poem's super important because that'll either make people want to go to the next one or it'll kind of get them to set it aside and come back to it. Maybe never. What was your thought process in, uh, in ordering your book?
1: Oh, good question, uh, James. And I'm so glad to hear that, um, that the, that the ordering, uh, made sense to you and, and, uh, that the opening was a, was a, uh, was an effective one. I'm, I'm relieved to hear you say that because, and uh, uh, nobody else has this book yet, except for Finishing Line Press, and its its uh, pre sales are going to start in a in about a week or two, and the book itself is going to be shipped uh, to whoever orders it in August. But it's practically set in stone uh, now. I have to make a, a couple of tiny little changes, but nothing that will alter the the ordering of the poems. So I thought of uh you know the the title I, I thought that i would i would begin with with a with a poem that would contradict the title and that would make uh, that, that would ask ask the reader wonder to wonder what you know what else might be in this collection it's called american rondo is it a you know if it's going to be if it's going to be some kind of some kind of dance with american life Is it going to be strictly American? I don't think there is such a thing in a country like ours as strictly American. Uh, This, you know, of course, is a country of, you know, uh, and, and, you know, uh, innumerable foreign experiences, innumerable experiences and influences from the outside. It's a very, still, a very new country. And so I thought... Why not begin with ancient Rome and juxtapose ancient Rome with uh, with the United States, because there will be other such juxtapositions in the um, in the poems that are inside the collection.
0: So collections are inevitably written over multiple years and usually not as a single project but as a series of individual poems, did you revisit and adjust any of the poems in American Rondeau when considering the poems as a collection, not as individual poems?
1: You know, I, I, I don't think I did, but I did write Roman Rondo, especially for this collection. I, I was not pleased with the idea of beginning with the poem that became the last one. And the titular poem, American Rondo. I was not pleased with that. And so I wrote several poems especially for this, especially for this collection. As soon as, it, as soon as its form began to to gel, then I I I knew that there were that there were two or three or four other poems that I needed to write uh, in order to round it out.
0: So you have a wonderful ability to perform your poetry. How did you develop that skill? What's your approach to preparing to recite your poetry? And I hope that you consider using your voice for maybe the last of your three Sestina films. I think the way, for for listeners, go back to an earlier episode and you will hear Carmen uh, reciting uh, the third of the Sestinas based on Shakespeare. But I think you should consider being that voice um, because I think you do a wonderful job. But what's your approach to reciting your poetry?
1: Thank you, James. That's very flattering. The um, the um, third of the sestinas, that's going to it's going to it's, whoever does the voice will uh, will be chosen by James uh, Woodward, the director. But James has had me do a recording of American Rondo. Uh, I don't know if I sent you the little film. Uh, which was also, it also made its way to a, a film festival in Raleigh, North Carolina, I think. Uh, Raleigh, or uh, no, uh, Greenville, I think. Greenville North or Greenville, South Carolina. Now I can't remember. I couldn't go because of COVID. Um, but I'll send you the link. There's a YouTube link uh, to that little video. I think that the my only goal in in reciting poetry is is not to make it sound like an artificial affair it, it, it has to have a it, it, it has to sound like human speech. I'll never forget uh, a brilliant interview with one of my favorite writers, Bruce Chatwin, uh, in the 1980s. I think it appeared in Granta. Uh, he, he said something, and he wasn't the first one to say it, but but I remember the way that he the, the way that I remember because he said it. Uh, he said that that the the power of Dante's Inferno lies in the fact that it, it lies in his form. It lies in the fact that his terza rima, is is his his, 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 his three line form, it has this has a kind of has a kind of Rhythm that emulates the rhythm of a uh, of the walking pace that characterizes Dante's walk along with Virgil uh, through the regions of Hell, and and he he said also that uh, that of course the iambic beat is a heartbeat. Billy Collins says that you know to to write poetry you have to think iambically. Well, there's a lot in that. What he means, I'm sure, is what Bruce Chatwin meant, and that is that the that the that the pulse of uh, of the English language is is capable of of replicating the the, the human pulse, the heartbeat, uh, and so uh, along with inflections, along with slowing, you know, moments when you slow down. Moments when you come to a stop, a sisura, for example, if you're going to bring a clause to a stop in the middle of a line, there had better be a good reason for it. Uh, and it had better be rooted in the, in the meaning of the very syllable that creates the stop. And I think it's our job, I think, in writing poetry or prose is to, is to keep the language in a, state of, in a state of flux until we put it down on the page and, and, and the shape that it ultimately um, hardens in, had better be as close as possible to something about the shape of the meaning that it conveys so that the, the, the form, not just the form of the poem, but the form of the phrase uh, matches as closely as possible. The, something about the form of the meaning, and every meaning has a form, that's the hard thing. How do you find the, you know, the shape of a meaning? What do you mean? Well, if it's, uh, if, you're, if you're expressing heaviness or pain or even extreme pleasure, then, then maybe you want to, to, to bring three or four stressed syllables in a row, unrelieved by unstressed syllables that might speed up the pace inappropriately. But for that to work, you need a rhythm behind it and ahead of it that can, uh, that can isolate that moment as, as an exception, an anomaly, a genuine slowing down or stopping. I I hope I've gotten somewhere close to to an answer. No,
0: I think you have. And you've given this, I've asked this question of several poets. Uh, Olivia Gatwood's a wonderful performance poet and comes at it from a totally different perspective. So I think that was, that's very helpful. And I'm listening with eager ears as I'm trying to continuously improve my ability to perform my poetry. Well, finally, to close out, what projects do you have uh, on your plate right now? What are you working on? What are you excited about in the coming years?
1: So I'm, I'm, um, I'm working now with, um, with a professor that I had in the 1980s in Dayton, Ohio, named Lawrence Hussman, whose poems I, I happened upon uh, about a year ago, uh, because someone alerted me to the fact that he had written a, a chapbook and, uh, and a memoir of, of his experience at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. And, and um, he changed the names of many of the people that he savages in that book. But I knew all, almost all of them because I was there. And I never knew Hussman closely while I was there. But I reviewed his book for the Vincent Brothers Review, which is a, a, a journal, uh, an arts journal published by another one of Hussman's former students. And um, it turned out to be a memoir of my own. And the editor told me, turn this, it doesn't matter that you know all these people and that you're too close to this material. Turn, turn your review into a memoir. So I did. And I, so I wrote this long uh, review that's basically a memoir of my own. And, um, and then Hussman started, I wrote to him and he wrote back to me and we've been in contact almost daily ever since. And he's come out with another chapbook uh, recently. We exchange poems. Uh, he's in his 80s, and he's living on the Oregon coast, and still very active. He was, he, he's a, a Dreiser scholar, a scholar of, a, of um, uh, uh, Frank Norris and other American naturalists. And uh, so now I'm helping him put together his collected poems, uh, which we hope to publish along with a, a, a revised version of that memoir of mine as, as an afterword. We don't know who's going to publish the collection yet, but we'll we'll find find a source. And I'm working on uh, an Italian play that I translated. Uh, This is a totally different project, uh, but a playwright named Alessandro Casola, who lives in, I think he's living in Rome, has written a play that has received a great deal of attention uh, called, in Neapolitan dialect, amunnezza which means limondizia, filth or waste, and it was it's it's about it's about the um, uh, the problem of uh, solid waste disposal in the city of Naples. I translated this play for him, and it's been translated into a, half a dozen other languages. And now I'm I'm writing an essay about it for a collection, a collection of essays on discard and waste. In Mediterranean li- uh, literature, this is uh, this is a, a, a growing field that I know very little about, but I'm uh, I'm beginning to to read. Uh, you know, I'm reading theoretical uh, tracts on uh, on the whole business, and that's so. That's another project I'm working on, and and another one is a collection of translations of uh, biographical and autobiographical documents that have to do with an Italian writer that I've, that I've dedicated much of my life to, Italo Zvevo. Uh, that's a pen name. He was really a, a Jewish uh, Italian from Trieste. Uh, his real name was Hector Aaron Schmitz, or Ettore Schmitz. Uh, and he wrote his masterpieces, Confessions of Zeno, or La Coscienza di Zeno, James Joyce befriended him and had uh, had his first two novels translated into French and uh, he became well known and in fact Svevo is one of the models that that Joyce used for Leopold Bloom he had a picture of Svevo above his desk as he as he finished U- James, James Joyce uh, as he finished Ulysses so well, along with another scholar I'm putting together a collection of um Autobiographical documents, essays, letters, and so on, that have never appeared in English together in the same place before, all of which have to do with uh, with with Zvevo. But those are my main projects.
0: As I expected, you're you're you've got a lot coming up, and that's terrific uh, for all of us that love to read your work. Well, thank you so much for taking a few moments to share your poetry, your insights with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. And for all listeners, look out for American Rondeau. By the time this is live, it should be in pre-sale. So make sure to reserve a copy. It is an absolutely wonderful read that you will read cover to cover, I guarantee it, in one sitting. It just draws you right in and does not let you go. So thank you again. It's been wonderful talking to you.
1: Thank you, James. You're most welcome. And I I have to say, I, I really enjoyed your latest book, and that and that marvelous impressionistic uh, romp through uh, through Russia.
0: Yes, yes, that was um, tragically timely. My Soviet I... Union experience as a teenager many, many decades ago. Uh, yes, that book was as I reread a poem, I wrote a long series of poems I read or wrote years ago. I was the takeaway I took from my own book was that's nostalgia we don't want to go back to. Um yeah, it was fascinating, but uh, but thank you so much again for reading my book and your and your and your wonderful comments on it. You're welcome. And we'll be in touch. Yes. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. And follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.